0: Baby, I'll give it to you. That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter
1: down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all okay, set,
2: Welcome to Space Boffins. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham.
3: and I'm Sue Nelson. This time we talk to the author of The Martian, Andy Weir. He has a new book out about an astronaut. Stranded
2: in space. It is about an astronaut stranded in space. It is written in the first person. But it is very different, as he will assure us later on. We will also talk to Jason Achilles Mazillis, the man who put a microphone on... On Mars and it's an awesome interview. It is great. He's
3: very laid back. Let's put it that way. A laid back musician in LA and we love him. But let's begin with a launch on May the 18th, 1991. The UK's first astronaut was blasted into space on an eight day mission to the Mir space station.
2: 30 years ago this month. Helen Sharman, welcome back to Space Boffins. Oh, thank
4: you, Richard. It's always lovely to be with you on here. Now, there there are
2: striking parallels, I think, with today because your mission was initially privately funded and astronauts were selected through a competition, very similar to what's going on with SpaceX at the moment. For those who don't know, can you just explain how you ended up sitting in that Soyuz rocket?
4: Yes, it was very odd. And I suppose in, in many respects, you might say it was sort of a bit ahead of its time in the, in how it was organized. The UK did not have a space agency back in 1989, right? Um, if I hadn't had a space agency, perhaps ever, <laughs> as far as I, I can tell. And I was, um, never expecting to be an astronaut. Those kind of things happen to people in America. They happen to Russians. I grew up in the 1960s and British people didn't go into space. To cut a long story short, I was very happy in my job as an industrial scientist when I heard of a brand new opportunity. The idea was they wanted British people to apply to train in Star City with the cosmonauts and then to do experiments on board the Mir space station. Now, because the UK didn't have a space agency, it wasn't organising this. um, The whole idea was that the Soviet Union, as it was then, was trying to open up politically as well as in many respects to the Western world. So the Soviet Space Agency had approached the French and the Germans and the Austrians and the British. And of course, the French and the Germans and the Austrians all said, oh, yes, we'd love to do this um, and, (laughs) and sort of got on board. The British, who were not supporting human spaceflight at all, whether or not we had a space agency then, but the British government said, "Oh no, no, it's a very good idea. We think it's very yes, we'd love to do this, but um, we can't do this because it's not part of our policy. We can't use taxpayer money to um, to fund this." So a company was set up. I'll say supported in, in a loose way, if you like, in a sort of in, in the very background way by by the UK by the government, but certainly not funded. And the company made an agreement with the Soviets space agency the company then had to get funds to to make this thing happen the idea was it would get funds by um with sponsorship and the company issued this what what, what i call it loosely an advert i suppose a job advert of basically astronaut wanted no experience necessary apply here
2: that seems extraordinary isn't it absolutely i mean does that still seem extraordinary it it seems that. A peculiar journey, doesn't it? Particularly as the the UK was adamant it didn't do astronauts at that point.
3: Wasn't it the British the British National Space Centre? It, it, it? Well, well, it, it yes, still? barely that. But I even think. then, that was mostly robotic spacecraft. Mm. It, it wasn't at all. No, no humans allowed. Oh, absolutely. start from building it. we
4: would had a few astronauts um, or pe- pe- people, military people, training with NASA in the 1980s. And one of them would have become the first British astronaut had it not been for the Challenger accident. When, when that happened, NASA told all of its foreign trainees to basically go home until they sorted out their their safety. And then in that intervening time, while that safety was being sorted out, but before the next space, space shuttle mission happened, the British government had decided no, no, we're not going to support human space flight anymore. Far too long term um, returns on your investment. We're going to do the, um, the, the robotic stuff and also all that Earth observation stuff.
2: How much of a diplomatic element was there here? Because it's the dying days of the Soviet Union, 1991, and this. Agreement, an increasing agreement between Margaret Thatcher and and Soviet leader Mikhail
4: Gorbachev. Well, they had a huge friendship, didn't they? I mean, Mikhail Gorbachev obviously was wanting to have um, to open up the Soviet Union in in a gradual way, to um, increasingly so, to, to to all sorts of Western countries. But yes, I think um, there was a particular friendship with Thatcher and Gorbachev, and. Um, I think there was an, an awful lot of work that went on behind the scenes. I'll never know really the full, um, the full scale of that. But eventually a new agreement was made with the Soviet space agency. So I performed Soviet experiments in space. And that was, if you like, part of the fee that the British company paid, um, to the Soviets for my space flight. And then later on in space, once I docked onto the space station, um, I got a very unexpected phone call from the Kremlin. (laughs) And wow. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, had I known it was happening, honestly, I would have prepared something wonderfully esoteric to say and uh, it would have been, uh, I'd have felt much more comfortable in some respects, but it was very informal and it was lovely. And Gorbachev was in the Kremlin. He had his hot telephone um, with his hotline pretty much to the space station and um, mission control just basically said, um, um, OK, so um, congratulations on your docking. Um, just to let you know, we've, uh, we've got somebody on the line from the Kremlin who would like to have a word and Gorbachev just had a chat you know it was lovely it was so informal um I think I managed to blurt out something in Russian of course about um about isn't this wonderful about how we can do these great things when countries collaborate and it's great for the science as well and that's how science ultimately progresses in terms of all this collaboration and uh, we need to share more and then it just became a chat about um, about, about what was happening in space, about um, who was going to have the better dinner that night. <laughs> and, and I think that was just to mark the fact that, yes, this was quite a significant space mission. You know, it made me realise it it was more, it, more than just little old me going into space. Um, and it was more than just the first person from a particular nation. This was the first Britain. And that was politically important at the time.
3: And and I think what's so important as well is is this is that Project Juno is starting you know finally to be put into historical context as well in terms of you know not just was there the first British woman but also you know one of the the, the politics involved and you you were one of the very few women at that time to fly in a Soviet spacecraft as well plus rather like what they're planning today it, it now feels prescient and ahead of its time. And you had a huge amount of training. I mean, you mentioned there, you know, your conversation was in Russian, so you learnt Russian, but you, you spent 18 months training which, you know, is far more than some people with uh, sort of space tourism plans <laughs> mm-hmm. sort of today. Uh, and one of your tutors was Alexei Leonov, first man to walk in space, who um, I've had the pleasure to meet at the Science Museum. I think you were there, uh, uh, possibly there as well, I think, for the Cosmonaut uh, exhibition. Of I mean, that's a wonderful experience. I mean, how do you look back on on that now?
4: You're right. It was an amazing experience. And uh, yeah, Alexey Leonov, as well as many others, actually, of course, Alexey, we know because he's exuberant and this great personality. Um, but many of them, you know, in their own ways, um, just just absolutely amazing people to, to work with. 18 months training is not long in terms of general spaceflight training. So if you get c- recruited as a, um, as a career astronaut, you'll go through background general training first before you're Flight assigned, um, but if you like, I was already mission assigned this was a very specific mission, so the training could be say reduced to eighteen months, but nonetheless yes this wasn 't a kind of it, i wasn 't going up as a kind of um, just just a, a passenger, if you see what I mean this what I had to understand about the spacecraft because even more so than nowadays on Soyuz, you know we did a manual docking, for instance, I had to participate in that this wasn 't something that the commander could do on his own, he needed all. But all the occupants, so both the engineer and myself, as as researcher, we had to take part in the operations of that spacecraft during all sorts of different um different manoeuvres, say, including something like a manual docking. So yes, I had to be um properly trained to be a proper you know full crew member. But nonetheless, it was, I suppose. 18 months yes but only 18 months in a funny way yes but yeah but a, a fantastic time you know I, this was 1989 1990 and 91 i was living in the soviet union in this military base and for me it was the most different kind of experience it was so otherworldly um i'd never been on a military base before never lived there barbed wire around the concrete um walls around the end, you know the um, perimeter of this small town little village out northeastern of Moscow, um, soldiers on the on guard with their guns. I had to show my pass, my proposk before I could go into different sections. But what an amazing experience. Yes. So I learned so much in so many different ways.
3: And was all your training in Russian?
4: Yes, the whole thing was in Russian.
3: Even the Russian teaching was in Russian. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm so impressed with uh, you know what you, what you've done. What was it like when you first approached Mir and and you knew, you know, I'm here. What was going through your mind?
4: We'd had a manual docking, so that was quite stressful. Let's say so. First of all, it's the relief to be there, um, and then the relief to be able to, all three of you stretch out. So Soyuz is quite cramped and it took us two days to get to the station. Very typical kind of launch trajectory then from ground to station was two days on Soyuz. So two days inside this quite small spacecraft. So to stretch out was fantastic. To meet two other people who had been up there for six months, they were delighted to see us. And when you think back to Mir and its communications with the ground, you know, those two people who'd been on board this space station for six months with the only means of communication with the ground being the radio. There was no email then. Right? There was no internet. There was no, um, no satellite phones that they could use to call home. It was just the radio. Now, we had official radio, which was used to communicate with mission control. Um, but we could only do that when we were in direct line of sight over certain parts of the Soviet Union, which were relay stations back to mission control. When we were around the other side of the earth, there was nothing. Now, you could sometimes that was nice, so you didn't get Mission Control jabbering away all the time at you, telling you to do this, do the other, and change their plans. but um, it does mean that you know they were quite remote, quite isolated, just two of them. they also had a what we call a sort of a, an amateur radio station which we 've still got on the international space Station, and that 's great for doing all sorts of things. We can communicate with um, with schools, and I did a bit bit of that while I was up there, but also you can make friends with people all over the world in your spare time. Um, over Europe, it's quite busy. There's a lot of noise, but over more remote parts of the world, like let's say the Australian outback, um, if you've got a space enthusiast who knows the space station's coming over, um, he can sort of make friends with the cosmonauts up there. Yes. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so they did. Kind of, they used that, which was their bit of communication. But yeah, so I think getting to the Mir space station was this combination of you know stretching out, meeting these two people. Everybody was so elated and happy to be there, and um, and and knowing that that was um, that was the beginning. Beginning really of, of my space mission in some respects. My experiments were starting then, um, whereas the previous time on Soyuz, although I was feeling wakeless and getting used to that, um, my mission wasn't really going to begin till I got to the space station.
2: Uh, and Mir itself, I, it always annoys me with Mir that it got this bad publicity in the end with you know, the failures and the leaks, the, the collision. But I mean, at that point and in the early 90s, I mean, it's a remarkable feat of engineering and a remarkable achievement by, by the Russians, by the Soviet Union.
4: It was tremendous. I mean, when you think of any old piece of engineering, any old car, you're going to need more and more repairs and replacements. And even the International Space Station had, has had its fair share of leaks and holes, right? <laughs> and stuff. So, um, yeah, I don't think it's necessarily any different. But I think we um, we got into this this awful way of sort of it was, it was cool to knock those kind of old-fashioned things. Um, and of course, it was old technology because it had been developed a long time ago, but it was generally quite reliable and if it's fairly simple as well it means it's fairly simple to fix um, and for that we were we were quite grateful. But of course, you know, these things do need upgrading. And um, and I think while it was sad to see its demise in, what was it 19, no, 2002, I think it finally came back through the atmosphere, didn't it? That kind of time. But while that was kind of sad in some respects, um, I think it was great that it um, precipitated then, you know, th- this new era of great collaboration with the Soviets and, well, the Russians then. And um, and, and that's something that I think the International Space Station really is, apart from all the experiments and the science that's gone on there, that huge legacy of international collaboration is something that um, that we've learned a lot from.
3: Do you think the fact that um, when you returned to Earth, that, as you say, you you weren't a passenger, you were part of the mission, you did experiments, you had training, you learnt Russian, and yet it it d- did feel... I remember a lot of the headlines, you know, being... Girl from Mars because that was the name of the company uh, that you'd worked for um, when you when you got the, the the astronaut place girls from Mars you know comes back from space or goes to space it it was it wasn't i I felt it wasn't treated with the respect it deserved i mean did do you feel that now
4: and it's hard I suppose looking back um it, a lot of what was going on immediately afterwards of course I was still in in, in Russia, in the Soviet Union. And, and just, you know, again, it's hard to remember pre-internet, pre-mobile phone, pre-all of this communications, but I just didn't didn't know a lot of what was going on. It was only after I came back, you know, my mum had saved some of the newspapers that I could see some of the headlines. It's, um, so it kind of a, a bit, I was a bit out of it really. But there was... Um, There was a great desire on behalf of the the company that had been set up to, to manage this mission to then try and reap back some of the funds that it hadn't been able to gain before. And to make this into um, in, into a big sort of or perhaps make me into a bit of a celebrity, um, and then I think that was that was part of the, part of the idea that i would I would earn money for the company in that way. Um, I certainly didn 't want to be a celebrity, so um, but, but nonetheless' uh, so perhaps another story. but I think that the the p r company um, was very much trying to um, make as much Media bang, let's say, as they possibly could, and that was the feeling at the time that they could do it that way by by celebrityizing it. It's an awful word I've just created, but there we go. Um, but it's very but, American, <laughs> it isn't it? Um, but you know, making making it into 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 this kind of yeah, as a sort of a, a much more of a marketable commodity, I suppose, um, and I think that that was part of it. But um, I very much didn't feel. Uh, comfortable um, I certainly don't think I would have been good at being a a celebrity it it was Um, the
3: wrong time people don't realize do they that a lot of women at the time who were on screen in the UK on TV who were considered celebrities they weren't there for their intelligence uh, a lot of the time it it was uh, I hate to use the phrase set dressing but that's women were the assistants they were you know it 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 was a different era.
4: It was, and we have come an awful long way in the last 30 years in, in that respect, haven't we? Well, in many respects, but yes, and, that, and I'm great, grateful for that. But again, it's hard as a um, as somebody who was, if you like, always on the inside. So I did chemistry at university. Yes, there weren't very many of us, I'll say girls, but of course we were over 18. We should have, been, we should have thought of ourselves as women, right? Um, so there weren't many of us young women doing chemistry, but that was the way it was. And I never, I never really questioned it. I was the only woman in my team when I started working in industry in an electronics factory to start with. Um, When I then moved on to confectionery, there were a few more. But uh, yes, we still called ourselves girls. We just operated in this area where, yes, people who knew us in our teams um, just got on with us and we got on with them. And and that was was it. But certainly outside of that, um, how we were perceived by the rest of society, that was probably harder for me to appreciate. I, I always just, I suppose, just got on with things, knowing that I, perhaps as an individual, I wasn't going to change how I could be, a cell or how women were being perceived by the rest of the world, but I could at least do what I wanted in life. And I did. I just got on with it and almost did what I wanted, disregarding the fact that I was born with two X chromosomes. Um, But yes, the the government um, was in, I suppose, a bit of a difficult position. So having said we don't support human spaceflight, we're not funding this particular mission and taking a big step back. Although, you know, Margaret Thatcher was very keen to meet with me before and after my space mission. So um, interesting in some respects. Um, The the Department for Education, though, um, was very good. So I'd had um, a meeting with... John Major, who had just become Prime Minister just before my space flight, and I'd had a meeting with him just afterwards, a private meeting, Um, and he basically said, you know, um, what can we do to help? You know, there's something, you know, we're obviously, we 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 haven't got a job for an astronaut, (laughs) we can't do that, but is there anything? I said, well, you know, one of the things I'd really like to do is to make use of my space mission. I'm not quite sure yet, it was very early days, how best to do this, but I think one of the things could well be um, talking to young people about space the opportunities in space. And he basically just said, right, we'll get the Department for Education involved in that. Um, and things just happened. And before I knew it, it uh, I, I had um, support from what were then the Her Majesty's inspectors in the Department of Education. Um, and I was working with um, science advisors. And these people helped, well, they basically set up a tour of U- the UK schools for me. I went to the north of Scotland. I went to Ireland, Northern Ireland. I went to Wales, um, all around England. It was fantastic. So I went across the schools um, and and talked about, um, well, I thought I was going to talk about my space flight. But of course, <laughs> once I got into the schools, the teachers were saying, you know, this is 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 fabulous science. And this is the curriculum for this age group and that age group. And the teachers really helped me to understand how my experiences could be linked to science and what the children were trying to learn then, what the teachers were trying to teach them. And then of course being directly in front of groups of children of varying ages. Children give you absolutely um, brilliant feedback. There is, there is um, no politeness with children. If they're not interested in something, you know about it right? immediately. So this was great feedback for me. So I was learning how to communicate. The teachers were helping me to understand what was best to communicate. And so, yeah, through the government, kind of in this odd way, um, I started off realising how I could really make best use of my spaceflight, which was communicating science. Um, and, of course, then I um, I realised um, with other work I was doing in, in other organisations that if we – it's not just about young people, but even if we just want to, to get, encourage young people to continue their careers in science and, and engineering, Engineering. Actually, it's their parents also that we have to convince that you know these careers are can be useful and are, and are worthy um, and that also the rest of society to appreciate STEM in all of its glory as part of life and and being valuable so it became a much more of a general mission of mine and I never thought it would last 30 years but yeah so (laughs) thank you government I do have something to thank 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 the government for and uh, yeah it's um this is how we work in these in these odd ways I suppose with what we've got you know whether I was working with what I've got because I was in industry as a female scientist or being the first person from my country to, do, to go into space or um, you know the fact that the the government at the time didn't support human spaceflight indirectly there's an awful lot of stuff that we, we we could do
3: and and I think because of that it, it I think that's partly as well why it 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 took so long for people to realize that Tim Peake wasn't the first British astronaut in space. Yes, as we all know, he was the first British European Space Agency astronaut in space. I I think that now people realise, like you said, the importance of STEM, what you can get. I think if you'd had gone up 20 years later, it would have been a completely different treatment in terms of of how you were known. I mean, I've been in schools. I mean, this is no reflection on you because I've put up pictures of you and uh, in a sixth form and no one knew could recognise your face. Then I showed them Valentina Tereshkova. No one recognised her or knew her name. So that's why I say it's no reflection on you. So it is always quite amazing that you you have to realise that with a new generation, it's it's history sometimes just goes back as far as the last YouTube video.
4: No, you're absolutely right, and I think and yeah, public memory generally is quite short. But also because we've got all this electronic stuff now, if you do a search on things that happened before we had the internet, um, internet yes. yeah, there's there's very like few stuff happened. come up. <laughs> yeah, it's it is very, very it is an interesting scenario. So there is that. going going on. But there's also, of course, when it Um, Tim Peek, I mean it wasn't his fault at all but it was, you know, his spaceflight, the UK Space Agency, seemed desperate to actually say that he was the first British astronaut. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of news stories did actually you know, were reported as that because that was what was on the press releases of the UK Space Agency, almost trying, it would appear to me at the time, to rewrite history. Yes. Um, Because I think, and I was told at the time by certain people within the UK Space Agency, that they Thought that the public wouldn't want to know about Tim Peake's space flight if he weren't the first, (laughs) because somehow you need that—you know—the first ever. It's got to be the first ever person to do such and such, and for the media to get to get excited by it. Of course, we were all going to be interested in Tim's flight because it was for lots and lots of reasons. We 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 were going to be behind Tim anyway, and of course, we were in the end and and, and lovely. But um, yeah, there was um, there's, there's a lot of different reasons, I think, why. I suppose my mission itself was not reported um, in in, in later times, but I think yeah, why it's not known now. But but I have no um, no no big gripe i suppose i mean they the, say so i completely understand what's going on and if, you, if you're young you, you you like you say you hear about the latest youtube video
3: <laughs> that's where it is i sort of love the way tim peak um, it's a bit like andy murray whenever somebody interviews andy murray and they seem to forget when they're talking about championships that like the, the serena williams might have won them first or the women might have won. and he always corrects them goes serena and Serena, <laughs> and I like the way Tim Peak at the time as well. And I've been in news conference where he's always gone after Helen Sharman. After <laughs> 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 yeah, Tim
4: Tim's been great, and I think he was quite embarrassed by it all. And it certainly wasn't his fault at all. Uh,
2: very briefly, and I know we've kept you much longer than we promised. Um, do you have any advice for you know? You've done all this STEM work, you've done all this outreach, um, and we really appreciate you doing this uh, this podcast interview because you don't do that many interviews now. But what would be your advice for the next generation or those thinking of of STEM careers or even space careers or even astronaut careers? Uh,
3: Particularly as a mission specialist like you were.
4: (laughs) (laughs) I think it's um, uh, there's two things really. One is that um, amazing things can happen with STEM. The future is so um it's it's going to change so much more rapidly than even the last 10 years right and the vast majority of opportunities we think are going to be in stem type of roles i won't say careers because they're going to be all sorts of weird and wonderful ways that you can make your life but um i think stem is really going to be the way that uh, where a whole load of new opportunities are i think the other thing is that um that With STEM, we can solve some huge issues. Um, Global warming will not be solved without STEM. We know how, um, I mean, I think STEM itself and science has got a really good press in terms of vaccines right now. Um, And the pandemic, although it's been horrible in so many ways, I think science does have um, some, you know, we've got a good news story here and people young people have really appreciated that. Um, we've suddenly discovered that things like mathematical modelling of biological systems, who'd ever really heard of that out in the big wide world of people who aren't mathematical modelers? But now we know that those kind of jobs, careers exist. And I think we're realising that science can solve these big issues. It can really help individual lives be better. Um, and say it's about those future jobs as well. So amazing opportunities can happen when you don't expect it with STEM subjects, but we can solve all these wonderful things in the process. So yeah, it's just um, the future's bright with science.
3: Fabulous. Helen Sharman, thank you so much for joining us on the Space Buffins podcast.
2: Sadly, last month saw the death of Gemini 10 and Apollo 11 command module pilot Mike Collins. One of the most articulate of that generation of astronauts.
0: About the, the flight itself, the thing I remember most is the view of planet Earth from a great distance. Tiny, very shiny, blue and white, bright, beautiful, serene, and fragile.
3: Columbia, this is Houston, ALS, over. Houston, yes, Columbia on the gate, over. Roger, the EVA is progressing beautifully. I guess you're about the only person around that doesn't have TV coverage of the scene. That's all right,
0: I don't mind a bit. 50 or 60 years from now, I think we'll be doing amazing things that we're not able to predict with any accuracy whatsoever today. People have this curiosity. They want to know about the universe. They want to know more about how it works, how it affects uh, their lives.
2: Mike Collins command module pilot of Apollo 11. And what I always think gets forgotten is the command module pilot. So the person who stays in orbit around the moon while the other two are on the surface, they were second in command yes. of of Apollo. So, you know, they could have stepped in. They could have, I mean, they weren't, they didn't f- had, hadn't spent so long training for the, the landing, but they knew that spacecraft inside and out. And they had to be able to, you know pilot it back to earth if the other two
3: astronauts were stranded on the moon oh, which but it was, television era, was, so it was a was all, all, possibility all about, uh, yeah. from the public's point of view it was a lot of it's it always about all about who, who walked yeah. on the moon
2: so As, you know it would be Neil Armstrong Mike Collins Buzz Aldrin was the most junior the member of, of the crew yeah
3: I've seen quite a few interviews on YouTube um with him and and that's often what TV reporters say is like did you mind uh, uh you know you didn't go on the moon and he's He's quite gracious in terms of how he answers them but uh, or were you lonely on the far side of the moon that's the other question and he he never you know he he wasn't <laughs> and he was witty as people who've um shared lovely reminiscence with him um since his death he was an intelligent smart humble witty man
2: yeah, and his book, Carrying the Fire, which was written in 1974, is one of the absolute best of the astronaut autobiograph- autobiographies, yeah, particularly from, of... from from that era. I would put that and Mike Al Warden's. And Mike Mullane's. Uh, yeah, of the shuttle era, Mike Mullane, yeah. ab- absolutely. But I'd say um, Al Warden's and uh, Mike Collins were the mm-hmm. best of the uh, Apollo, Apollo era. And of course, I mean, it, it, Mike Collins would have been a commander if the later Apollo missions had not been cancelled. Yeah. So if they carried on beyond Apollo 17, he almost certainly would have landed, would have walked on the moon.
3: I rather love um, the story. I, I was quite surprised to find that he'd actually failed his uh, flight school graduation first time round, uh, or flunked out, as he, as he put it. And there were loads of reasons why. And one of the stories he tells is that he thinks he gave the wrong answer in one of those raw, raw, sha- is it raw shats, how you pronounce it? Raw scats? Uh, one raw, of those, the pictures, the ink, pictures, plot, where the ink you blot put the ink yeah and You yeah, fold the paper yeah. and you're supposed to, you know, interpret what you see in the psychiatric exam. And he accidentally got given a blank piece of paper and he told the uh, psychiatrist he was doing the uh, exam that he said ah this is 11 polar bears fornicating in a snowbank <laughs> and and they didn't they didn't take too kindly to that joke so that he thinks that may have been one reason why he didn't and then he said and this I love this he said the next year the same test in the ink block." he said he saw his mother and his father and that his father was slightly larger and more authoritarian but not too much more than my mother and he passed <laughs> That's great. Any man who can say that make it just brilliant, brilliant.
2: Uh, and he was, of course, an artist. So he's best known in his latter years for, for being an artist as well. So uh, Mike Collins, who who died in April this year.
3: This is the Space Boffins podcast. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists. Still to come, sounds from Mars with Jason Achilles Mozilla's and author Andy Weir on his new space fiction. Do get in touch on Facebook or Twitter. You can also email us at podcast at spaceboffins.com or info at boffinmedia.co.uk. If you're new to Space Boffins, do follow the podcast and maybe you could write a review, only if it's good, of course, and not until you've listened to our next item, Sounds from Mars. I feel as I've got to go Bum, 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 bum,
1: bum. (laughs) (laughs)
3: That's what Perseverance sounds like as it's driving around Mars. And we're joined by Jason Achilles Mazillas, who's the designer of the microphone on board NASA's rover, which has let us listen in on the surface of a different planet for the first time. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Hello, hello. (laughs) How did you get involved uh, in this? You're a musician, you're in L.A., and now all of a sudden you're working with NASA. Did it?
0: Real quick, did I understand Andy Weir is going to be part of the same podcast that I'm on with yep. you guys? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. amazing. We, That's have really all amazing. The star, we have all the stars yeah, right. in this podcast. Yeah. This is like, not just shambolically thrown together, in, in although fact, it sometimes does sound that way. In well. fact, no. Jason,
3: he's second billing. Your, <laughs> Your first oh, billing. Yes, yes. I, I,
0: got, I got a buddy back home who's going to be so mad about this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, uh, yeah, I, I um So, yeah, I'm a... And, have always been and still am a professional musician, um, you know, by day, I guess, touring musician. Actually toured in the UK a few times uh, over the last couple of years. And uh, and I guess, uh, you know, extraterrestrial audio engineer by night. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, yeah it, it was back in uh, 2016. I reached out to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, here uh, about half an hour from where I live here in Pas- uh, in Pasadena, California. And I basically pitched myself as a, um, I don't know, a s- space enthusiast with a maybe higher than average, uh, you know, knowledge of the workings of the, you know, Curiosity rover and, the, you know, the, the machinations that were, you know, forming for Perseverance. And um, I'd heard that they were going to put a couple microphones on Perseverance. And so I basically pitched myself to both audio teams the EDL cam, the entry descent and landing camera system. Uh, that's the one that that's the team that responded and, and, um, few Months later, I was able to get on board with those guys, and it was, it's you know, it's, it's been wonderful.
3: Okay, now I said, so, I said LA, didn't I? I said you were in LA, I've just and you're in Pasadena. Yeah. No, no, yeah. I, I'm sorry, I just I'm think a, musician, it's late night, <laughs> your time. You said you were having a beer, I just assumed it's got to be LA, so sorry about that.
0: And, no, so, it, actually, <laughs> you, you are correct. At Pasadena is where they are, I'm half an hour away in Los Angeles proper, yeah.
3: Oh, well, that's good. I did so, get it right, I and, didn't get it and right. You are
0: correct about the beer.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's morning for us, so uh, we're just coffee, coffee o'clock, uh, uh, caffeine city, or whatever. Yeah, I've had too much. Yeah, you've know? got, <laughs> you got a bit hot. You
0: got, just be, got a bit I'm, over. England. rules by noon. You're on a Friday. It's open season.
3: Oh, absolutely, Ab- <laughs> yeah. absolutely. But what what gave you the idea in the in the first place, though? What what made you think? I know there should be a, a sound mic on Mars.
0: Well, it was a, it was an idea that I had had independently. Uh, talking with a friend of mine who worked at JPL, um, we were just having one of our sort of coffee beer nights together, and um, it it actually came from wanting to externally visualize the like that sky crane maneuver, that crazy for people that are familiar. You know, the the lander comes down and and then the uh, it comes down on rockets retro, you know, uh, retropropulsively. I guess is the word. And about yeah, we'll twenty, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then about uh, it was, I think, twenty meters from the surface, it goes into a hover and lowers the main rover chassis down on on ropes on like a chain sort of system, and then detaches. It flies off. It's this incredible thing that we've only ever seen, you know, with uh, computer simulations. That's how Curiosity landed. That's how Perseverance landed. And so, I was thinking that it would be really cool if we could visualize this and, sh- and show this to people by like essentially, you know, throwing GoPros off the side as it was, you know, completing this final landing sequence. And um, that that idea actually has now gotten funded for a different development. But at the time, my buddy was like, yeah, you know, that's probably they're not going to go for that. (laughs) And uh, but then I was thinking, well, you know, audios, I, I just started thinking about audio and like, well, that's a natural component of video systems. And you know, there's an atmosphere on Mars, kind of, Uh, you know, what, how hard could that be? You know, has has that been tried before? And so.
3: And and the answer is, it has been tried before, hasn't it? Yeah,
0: that's, that's what we discovered. And so basically, yeah, that the next number of months was reading all about that, learning about the, you know, the Planetary Society and their involvement. And Carl Sagan's, you know, first um, encouragement of that idea back in the I think it was mid or I think it was around 1996. It was just a year or two before he passed away. He wrote a letter to NASA kind of encouraging, you know, this audio capture and that it would be, you know, something that w- would do what it has done now, you know, get kind of stir everybody's imagination.
3: Now, because of the less than successful track record of, of getting microphones on, on Mars in, in the past, how did you decide to sort of test it, bearing in mind you're a musician and not a, a space scientist?
0: The long story short is eventually we ended up not doing the custom design, but ended up having to select an off-the-shelf component instead because of basically funding reasons you know there was no money set aside for this microphone this was really um our supervisor david gruel at nasa and a, a few other individuals that really spearheaded this thing despite not really having you know the, the budget set aside for it they really wanted this audio component which was amazing and so there was very limited testing done. <laughs> uh Virtually everything we've understood about this prior to landing was theoretical. At one point, they put the capsule inside a vacuum chamber and they backfilled it with, you know, Mars atmospheric uh, chemical properties, you know, and it worked. So they were like, all right, it works. (laughs) But that was, to my understanding, at least, and I don't want to speak out of turn, but I'm not aware that there was much else done in the way of actually testing the mic.
3: It, it sounds like they just sort of bought one off the shelf at Walmart. <laughs> so, or I'm assuming it was a good quality microphone. I only weighed was it just over 100 grams, so it's tiny.
0: It's probably good you don't make that assumption, but you are correct. <laughs> <laughs> it, it it was a good one. It's made by a company called DPA. Um, it's actually the microphone I'm speaking to you now on. Oh, cool. So basically, I ran these tests in, in my, my engineer's backyard in Reseda, we figured, look, the rover's in an ambient desert-like environment, and pretty much all of Reseda is a desert-like environment. So uh, we just set up in his backyard, and we pulled some full-range speakers out there. We set up this microphone I'm talking with you now, and then we um, I borrowed another one from DPA, and we set that as a control mic, and then we basically built a sort of a couple square feet siding of a metal chassis that we... I had some CAD drawings of where of the mounting structure of the microphone. So we, we placed it in accordance with how it would be on the Rover with similarly reflective metal surfaces, and then acoustically mapped the difference in the way the sound was tweaked through our, you know, mounted microphone versus the control one. And, um, it, it looks real goofy, but it actually was scientifically sound, and, and we got some pretty good results.
3: Excellent. If you have any pictures, you can share with us. That would be great because we can.
0: Uh, I do. Can, yeah, uh, I can put them on
3: our Facebook page and Twitter just to show people. That would be lovely. Well, it's
0: it, it's if they're going to see it, all, all the disclaimer is you're going to see one of them. It's a handicap parking sign. <laughs> we <laughs> we found it in the alley behind this guy's house. We needed a big piece of sheet metal, you know, that was you know solid enough and somebody dumped this handicap sign so that's you'll see that in there
2: this is very much like the Martian this is it very is. much <laughs> improvised
0: there's um, no poop potatoes technology. i promise
2: <laughs> <laughs> um uh, let's let's play another um clip from uh the recordings you actually made from from mars When you heard those, rec- I mean, were, actually, were they recordings or, or were they
0: live? And when you heard them for the first time, what was that like? Yeah, so nothing's live. I mean, it, the assuming that this was top priority signals, it would still take, you know, the speed of light plus, uh, you know, Deep Space Network and everything else to get to us, which is a considerable amount of time. Um and this is probably the lowest priority of all the data they're getting back. So it's definitely not live. But um, what was the actual question? <laughs> <laughs> it's less, It's nice to actually
2: speak to someone who's a little less highly strung than some of the people <laughs> we speak to. <laughs> My question was, what was it like when you first heard the audio? What, what was that, you know, I mean, it was a wow?
0: There's a long story, which I will attempt to abbreviate. We were supposed to record the entire entry Sequence. So that whole EDL sequence, the entry, the descent, the landing, the seven minutes of terror, that microphone was supposed to operate through about five and a half of those minutes and capture the rockets firing the, you know, the, the lowering of the rope chain, you know, device, the wheels touching down on the surface, the sky crane rocketing off into the distance, all this stuff. Right. And, um, by the end of the first day, it was relatively uh, known that we that audio was lost. There was basically a problem between the uh, the digitizer and the software; things not talking to each other.
3: Oh, that must have been gutting, though.
0: Well, so <laughs> shall we get into a personal interest story here? Yeah, yeah, why not? So, this wonderful, amazing article came out in Wired magazine on Thursday, the seventeenth. Telling everybody about my involvement in the system, and um, and so now my all manner of social everything is sort of exploding because this 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 um, this article went around the world. It was kind of crazy actually. And um, then Thursday, the successful landings. now again, everybody, congratulations! By Thursday night, Friday midday, I I basically know that we have failed to capture this <laughs> and i can't tell anybody that and my phone is still exploding with congratulations so by saturday night i'm in a bar getting drunk just trying to like you know four years of failure ah, you know and um at that point uh my supervisor at jpl dave david Cruel, um i get a message from him and he says and it's it's a text it says you know uh so it's confirmed. All that audio is lost. It was like binary garbage. It wasn't even. It's just there was nothing. You know, he says. But we did actually turn it back on today. It works. It worked fine, and uh, we got a little puff of wind. And I think I said back like in all caps, you know, send it to me now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so my you know my first experience hearing this was you know in in a crowded bar you know. I mean, we've got that, you know, COVID separation thing, but we're, you know, I'm over in the corner on a cell phone, you know, trying to, you know, listen to this sound file from my email on a phone. From Mars. From Mars, drunk, half drunk. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it was, um, I think my experience was different than most other people's.
3: (laughs) And and do you know that, what we're hearing is exactly sort of what you would hear on Mars because obviously Mars's atmosphere is less dense than Earth's and that's what's often caused the huge difficulties with probes landing on Mars is that dangerous uh <laughs> bit through the atmosphere it's it's scuppered many a, a, a mission so I wondered you know in terms of the transmission of sound um how are you sure that it's what what, is it the same as what we'd hear on earth i suppose
0: yeah well yeah yeah and it's your that your point about the atmosphere is is interesting right it's like people think oh because there's an atmosphere there it should be easier to land but it's like just it's like the goldilocks zone of hell right where it's just enough to cause you to burn up but not enough to actually slow your descent (laughs) very much you know a lot of people have asked me you know does this sound like you would expect it to and and you know the, the, the honest answer is yes, um, because if you look at the equations that, you know, have been developed by decades before we even began on this, there was there was a really amazing paper that was put out. So sound falls off very quickly with distance, uh, especially the higher frequencies on Mars. But the thing is, everything we're hearing is very close. So it's actually not getting attenuated much because it's not traveling through much atmosphere, you know? So a lot of people are surprised by the clarity of this sound. And if you look at the charts and you're not an audio specialist, you would see this big curve that sort of ramps down in the middle of this chart and you think, Oh, we're losing all this high end. But as an audio engineer, you know that most of the frequencies that lie above that are are like really high detail level stuff. Before we finish um,
2: what's next for you what what's the next part apart from the, the immediate future when
0: you really clearly need to get some have,
2: have a, finish your beer and have a sleep
0: okay. <laughs> sleep sleep is entirely overrated <laughs> it's it's interesting actually that i'm talking to you guys because i you know one, one of the things that i you know there was the unfortunate delay of the exomars rover what to the next uh, launch window it was about was that 22 years from now right
2: uh, two years from when it was meant to launch. so Yeah,
0: yeah. 18 months. But I was, yeah, yeah. I was sort of hoping that might be, you know, tragedy into triumph again, maybe an opportunity to sneak a microphone on board that. That would be lovely just because, you know, rides to Mars don't happen very often, right? And it would be great to try some different, you know, technological micro- mic configurations and see how they compare to the way this one's been working, you know. But, uh, yeah, that camera idea that we sort of touched on earlier, that's now in October of this last year, we got a, a, a grant funding from NASA to, to develop that. And so we're going to be doing a test, a suborbital, a suborbital flight test launch in uh, probably August this year with a company called Maston space systems here in Mojave, California, out in the desert here. Yeah. So it's, it's actually really exciting. I, I now I'm a, Principal Investigator, you know, uh, for a, a new mission, and
3: that's fab, isn't that fantastic? <laughs> it's
0: kind of nuts, yeah. you know. I mean, <laughs> you know, four years ago, I, I wasn't, I didn't even have my toes in 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 the water, and and uh, and now I'm fortunate enough to have my own mission. It's being supported by this wonderful company called uh, Honeybee Robotics here in um, also in the Pasadena area, and uh, Ecliptic Enterprises Corporation who's they, they've been sending cameras to space for decades, you know, and at Arizona state university, it's this great collaboration. And um, actually just this week, we've been getting everything rolling on it. So it's really, uh, I don't know. It's thrilling. I don't know. <laughs> so basically it's, uh, you know, the, the, this sort of selfie cam for rocket landings is what we're hoping to build and send to probably the moon first and then eventually to Mars.
3: Jason Achilles Mozilla, that was such fun, wasn't it, talking to him? That was great. And we, we talked about him being a musician and we'll be playing one of his tracks at the end of the podcast.
2: If that wasn't enough, we have another epic guest, Andy Weir, author of The Martian and Artemis. His new book is called Project Hail Mary. He describes himself in his biography as a lifelong space nerd. So I began by asking him
1: how important it was to make the science... And is science fiction accurate? Well, I mean, it's important to me. Uh, It's not necessarily important to the universe. But to me, I I really want my science to be scientifically accurate. So, I mean, sometimes there'll be a suspension of disbelief part, like a MacGuffin. And I'm like, okay, well, here's the MacGuffin or here's the thing that I'm just making up in terms of physics. But I want everything else to be accurate. So for for this book, for Project Hail Mary, it's this concept of a cell membrane that can contain neutrinos, which is sufficiently low level that most people either don't understand it or certainly don't care. And that's the only made up physics in Project Hail Mary.
2: (laughs) Again, in your biography, you know, it it talks about you being a you know, loving space history. And I was I, I was very taken with before you get to the words in your new book, that you've got a diagram of this spacecraft and it has this centrifuge mode where the two parts of the of the spacecraft spin around each other effectively. I mean that was something trialed in in the Gemini program. So again it's sort of rooted in reality. Were you excited
1: to kind of realize that that idea? Oh, yeah. For me, uh, research is my favorite part of writing. I mean, I like it a lot more than writing. I wish I could just do the research and then present my findings and people give me millions of dollars, but it doesn't work that way. So that ship, it's not much of a spoiler. The name of the ship is the Hail Mary. And yeah, designing that ship was awesome because I was like, ooh, cool. I get to design a spaceship You know, for my story. And it has these very specific goals, objectives, and okay, each thing led to the next thing. Like, it needs to have a centrifuge because it's got a fully functional laboratory aboard. And they didn't want to have to invent like lab equipment that could all work in zero G. They would rather use well tested, reliable lab equipment that's been made in the industry forever, but it does rely on being in one G of gravity. So, it's safer and easier to make the ship have a centrifuge mode, and then use a bunch of uh, well-tested lab equipment than it is to invent all the different pieces of lab equipment for the ship, and just stuff like that. Led me to each new conclusion on what the ship would have to be like. Also, since uh, one fun thing is since the ship is traveling at you know speeds of cl- approaching the speed of light. Um, You know, interstellar space, the the area of, of the universe between stars, is really sparse. It's almost a perfect vacuum, but not quite. There's about one hydrogen atom every cubic meter or something like that. That might not seem like much, but when you're going almost the speed of light, those add up, and actually uh, it would create a small amount of drag on the ship. So you have to design this interstellar spaceship to have a good uh, amount of like streamlining. That's really interesting. So that would mean really something like the Starship Enterprise or the sorts of
2: starships you get in – well, I mean, I was thinking something like uh, Battlestar Galactica
1: or Star Wars. They're wrong then. Well, no. I mean – Star Wars ships don't go anywhere near light speed until they go into hyperspace, and that's, like, a totally different thing. So they're never encountering the... Yeah, I guess
2: they kind of just hang around, don't they? Yeah,
1: Yeah. and then in Star Trek, the Enterprise and other starships of the Federation have navigational shields, so that deals with everything, such that, I mean, they could crash into, like, asteroids and everything. It doesn't hurt the ship. So, I mean, I I know you're trying to, you know do me a solid here by saying I'm more accurate than those other shows, but inaccurate fun is not fun. So you got to go for the full, you got to delve into the whole setting and genre, you know,
2: but that is really interesting, isn't it? That if you're going to fly, if you're not going to have something like a, a warp drive or something that you know within the, the boundaries between possible and impossible, if you're going to go really, really fast,
1: you've got to be streamlined in space. Somewhat, you don't have to be as streamlined. You don't have to be as well done as a jet, but you have to be streamlined. That's interesting. Um, something else. And again, this isn't giving anything away
2: because you know it's it's in like page one, really. So the uh, our um our hero. Wakes up after being in an induced coma, and the reason for putting him in the coma is because the the people behind the, the spaceship figure that three people stuck in a spaceship for
1: a long period of time will just g- g- kill each other, or or lose their minds, or commit suicide. Remember the so the trip from their point of view takes about four years, and they're in an area uh, about the size of. A typical living room. That's it. <laughs> so,
2: again, has, has research, so again, has research been done on that? I mean, is that, is that a, the, the obvious conclusion when you're doing something like that?
1: I mean, research has been done on that. That's why for long duration spaceflight, they say you need a larger ship, um, mainly so the humans can get away from each other and have their own space. Um, this one, uh, within the Context of my story, and it's all fiction, but I said that the Soviets had done research on it during their space program and found that they, you know, they couldn't keep people in small confines for more than about a month before they started to really, like, before there was violence.
2: (laughs) Yeah, because, I mean, you see, you, you know, you, you look at the um the International Space Station, the amount of training they do for the crews so they get on with each other. I was talking to uh, British uh, European Space Agency astronaut Tim Peake about this, and he said, you know, they, they spend like a day learning how to fly the thing and um, pretty much nine months learning how, how to get on with each other.
1: <laughs> yeah, and the ISS has considerably more space than the Hail Mary. Like, the ISS is the, the space inside where the people can go. I mean, there's, I think right now there's eight people as of the time we're recording this, there are eight people on ISS. It's a new record, eight or nine, something like that. But normally it's between three and six people and there's enough space for each person to kind of have their own little area. You know, you know, this person's going to go over there and do their exercise on the treadmill for a little bit. And while another person is in a different, uh, a different module doing some experiments, they can, they can have their own space and be away from the other people which is incredibly important for human interaction
2: now you've done all this research for for these three books now the Martian Artemis and and Hail Mary which i mean again it's not giving anything away to say it's a it's an interstellar spaceship going an awful long way away from from earth has this led you to sort of be able to predict what is going to happen <laughs> no. in, in in human space fight. I mean and, you know, again ultimate, <laughs> no,
1: I mean or has it made you think, oh, this is awful. I don't want to go into space. Well I've never wanted to go into space. Uh, one of the most frequently asked questions I get is hey if Elon Musk said hey you can have a trip on my spaceship or whatever, if if I could if you could go into space, would you? And I'm like, no, I don't even like getting on planes. I do it because I have to, but I have to take a Bunch of pills just to be able to handle it. I, I would. Ne- I'm, I'm an earthbound misfit. I am very scared of ordinary flying, let alone space travel. I would say thank you. I really appreciate the offer, but no thanks.
2: And what about the future of, of space exploration? I mean, even though you don't
1: personally want to be part of it, I'm, I'm absolutely with you there. The big, the big turning point will be someday our technology or energy systems or whatever. One way or another, we were going to have all the pieces in place to be able to make a booster that can put humans into low Earth orbit and turn a profit at a price that middle class people can afford to buy a ticket. So, if you could, if people could go into space for like 10,000 bucks, they would. Like you would now have a trillion dollar space industry. So, at some point, the technology that we have is going to drive that price down low enough. And then from that point on, it's going to be a trillion-dollar industry, and and then comes you know expansion. Like, okay, if it's fairly cheap to get into orbit, then it's still expensive, but less expensive to go to the moon. We can build a city on the moon. We can have tourism on the moon, and and so on. So, I do think it's inevitable. The only question is like when. Will it be during our lifetime? Eh, I bet you there will be humans walking around on the moon before I die, hopefully, but uh, I don't think there will be a city. You would talk about, you know,
2: the dystopian science fiction. I'm absolutely with you on that and the sort of, you know, writing that you do. I mean, it's it's great. It just, they're absolute page turners. And I think it's not just because you're optimistic, but I think it's because of that humour. And, and do you think you'll, you'll help to kickstart a, a new type of science fiction that's not so focused on this this humourless dystopia, but something a bit more optimistic and kind of, you know, humans are funny. There's been a lot of
1: funny stuff in the last year, however gruesome and awful it's been. I don't know. You know, after The Martian came out, I thought, oh, great, since it was so popular, a bunch of other people are now going to start writing, you know, hard sci-fi, scientifically accurate sci-fi. And then I'll get to read it. It's my favorite type of sci-fi. So now I'll get to read it. Yay! But nobody did. And, uh, I mean, The Expanse. That's pretty much it. Me and The Expanse series are kind of the only hard sci-fi out there. Well, there's the Calculating Stars, the Lady Astronaut series with Mary Robinette Kowal. Okay, there's some, but it didn't like suddenly permeate the market like I'd hoped it would. So I guess the bad news is I I don't get to read that much of that cool stuff. The good news is I have a niche now that I apparently own because no one else wants to come in. But you'd like the competition, would you? I'd like the competition because I'd like to be able to read those books. And ultimately
2: then, uh, are you you optimistic about about human endeavor, that it will follow the sort of path that you, well, kind of hope, hopefully not what happens at the beginning of um, Project Hail Mary, <laughs> but you know, but you know, ultimately a fairly optimistic
1: future. Yeah, I, I really do. I mean, Project Hail Mary is the most speculative among, of my books, right? I mean, The Martian is really rooted in real science. Artemis is there, but it's further in the future and it's a little bit less rooted. Project Hail Mary it, it involves like. You know, an alien microbe right off the bat. And so it's getting super speculative. But ignoring that, yeah, I do think that that's kind of the trajectory humanity will take. Earth is going to keep getting more awesome. It'll have dips and stuff like that and places where, you know, things get worse before they get better, but they always eventually get better
3: author andy weir whose latest book project hail mary is out in the uk now and i suspect quite a few other countries and i'm really looking forward to reading it if i can prize it from your hands well no i've
2: read it it's really great Mm. um uh, you know honestly it was one of those books that you just keep going back to i couldn't put down i managed to managed to read it in a weekend um, and I loved it and I think the first person and actually you have other characters in there as well which I can't can't give things away but it was it was great if I was going to be critical I think sometimes the, the amount of science does get you down I think his need to explain the science behind things sometimes I felt, well, just get on with the story don't explain <laughs> the science I don't care um, but that was but, sort
3: of the Martian as well there, yeah there was. Is a there was a chapter in, in, the, Martian, in the Martian where, there, where I get, went into great detail and I felt Gosh, I'm 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 getting a bit more <laughs> explanation. See, of than his I expect, three books, but I actually, think... it went it, it it soon got back. in. he's a great storyteller. I think that's uh, and good characters.
2: And uh, if I was going to uh, talk about his three books, I actually prefer his second book,
3: Artemis. Yeah, oh,
2: Artemis, which no one else seems to like. Oh, okay. um, so I thought of the three, I preferred Artemis. Um, because although it was written in the first person, it was a different character, probably a little bit more. More going on okay, around we'll it, see but how actually, when more I, when people, I, Hail I Hail Mary, think, I think more people we'll will have like Project uh, we'll Hail Mary. A big so, fight. Okay, so, uh, that's uh,
3: fabulous. Can't wait.
2: Yeah, excellent. Um, my documentary, by the way, on NASA's 35 New Guys is available on BBC Sounds and the BBC World Service website. It is called The Equal Rights Stuff and it'll be available. Forever. So you have uh, no excuse. Not sure I've got the forever. Oh, right. It <laughs> needs an echo. We, we, we've got the echo capability. We'll, to try, and get, we'll yeah. try
3: it again. See if Jack can put an echo right on. Yeah. yeah. Forever. forever. If you've read Andy's book, um, let's, let us know what you thought of it. Absolutely. Do drop us a message or comment on the usual social media platforms.
2: Our producer has been Jack Monahan. You can probably tell that there is some production in this podcast. Here to play us out, as promised, is Jason Achilles. This is an extract from his single RTL, ready to launch. Thanks for listening.